if God is in control and he's good, then why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? That's a question I get asked quite often from all sorts of people, Christians and non-Christians, and I don't know where you're at here today and how you've come to, to hearing this message of the God of the universe, but you haven't got to be around for long to be able to work out that our world is suffering. Sickness and death and pain are everywhere. Do you know that in New Zealand, more than one out of ten of every worker is employed in healthcare? That means of all the workers in New Zealand, one out of ten people are employed to try and fix your health or keep it moving well and not disintegrating or or going apart. And if it's not sickness, then it's disaster. If it's not disaster, it's terror. And if it's not terror, well, so often it's disappointment at others, at ourselves, for the things we've done and said. And just the world around us seems like it's just not as it should be, doesn't it? My guess is somewhere along the line that you, like me, have been touched by sickness or death or relationships that burst into pieces. Surely this isn't the way it's supposed to be. What I want to show you today is that God agrees. God's word actually agrees that this, the way that it is, is not the way it's supposed to be. But he doesn't just leave it there. God isn't the type of God that stands back and says, yeah, it sucks. Sorry about that. See ya. He's a God who steps into his creation, who's intimately involved in his creation. And we're going to see that today. It's at the heart of what he is like in this foundation stone of God's big picture of what he's doing in the universe. But I want to put it to you this week. That when it comes to the brokenness of the world, Christianity, particularly this single chapter in Genesis 3, makes the most sense of what we see, hear and feel compared to every other religion I've ever come across. To say it the other way around, no other religion or philosophy or ideal or understanding makes more sense of what I see and feel than the Bible's explanation of why the world is the way it is. And the key point that we note as we start today is this, something has gone wrong. Something's gone wrong. God tells us that when he made the world, it was good. We saw that two weeks ago as we opened up Genesis 1 and 2 that that God said and it happened and it was good. He was the one who defined goodness. He made the world to be good. He made Adam and Eve in this garden with no shame, no fear, no guilt, no pain. Imagine what that would have been like. They'd never experienced hurt or rejection or, or disappointment or pain. Imagine having no idea what any of those things were. How amazing that would be. Well, that's how life was meant to be. That's how God made human life. It's how he made us. And it kind of fits with our experience, doesn't it? Pain and suffering are not the way the world is meant to be. Death is just not natural. No matter how many people tell you it's just part of the circle of life and love singing Elton John songs in the background, it's just not that way. I don't know one person who, if they could reverse reverse the effects of death or aging, who wouldn't? It's not natural. It makes our hearts wrench. So what what went wrong? Have a look at this chapter. Chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 1. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? For the first time ever, for Adam and Eve, 
there was a reason to doubt the goodness of God. Revelation 12 tells us that this serpent was Satan himself. Satan is a part of God's creation, a created being who then turned against what God intended him to be, to be the father of all lies, because lying is is what he does, and that's what he's called. Did God really say? See, Satan doesn't want to celebrate the goodness of God. Well, God plants vegetation and creates the face of the earth in all its goodness. Satan plants lies, promoting us to doubt the the goodness of God. That's true, isn't it? Behind every sin, every rejection of God is the lie, the doubt that God is not good. That he doesn't have your best interest at heart. That there's some other way apart from his that is, that is better. Every time I reject God's ways, it's because I think I know better than God. I doubt the good creator of the universe. And Satan says one for me. And so we see Eve in this picture. Adam's wife, the, the pinnacle of God's creation. She allows herself to listen to a voice she shouldn't have listened to. The conversation should have ended right here and right now. No, snake, shut up, get lost. Who wants to listen to a talking snake? Get out. It can only be bad, right? But she didn't. She answers, she responds. And you notice the way she responds. She doesn't just quote what happened, what God said. She adds to what God said. Did you see that? Have a look at verse 2 of chapter 3. We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden... God said, you must not eat it. That's exactly what happened. Or touch it, or you will die. God never said, don't touch the tree. Eve's come along and added to it. Now, whether she's misunderstood Adam as he's passed it on, or whether here she's trying to kind of make God look a little worse, a little more sadistic and mean. We can't even touch it. And here we get our first taste of religion, right? Religion loves to do one of two things. It either takes away from the word of God, Or it adds to the word of God. And here she adds to the word of God to make God sound harsh. And once you think this God who made us for right relationship with him, this God who is good, once you start to think that this God can be harsh, well, it makes it just a little bit easier to walk away from a God like that, doesn't it? To justify, well, his his ways are harsh and they aren't for my good, they're not for my best. And so we just make it easier to step away from the one who made us. Quick as a flash, Satan has Eve where he wants her. Chapter 3, verse 4, No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Like all lies, they're half-truth, aren't they? Well, the good ones. They wouldn't die straight away, but death would enter humanity. Mankind would be removed from the everlasting life that God had made them for, from relationship with this God who made them in this one act, one thing. Once you know good and evil, you want to determine good and evil. And that's the role of God. You see, they want to be like God. And who doesn't want to be like God? Who doesn't want to set the rules in life? He doesn't want to work out what we think is right rather than him. And ever since this moment on, humanity have tried to be little gods, running around the world doing what we want as opposed to what God wants, thinking that God isn't good, that there's somehow something better than him. This is the moment. 
here is the reason why. Sin seduces us with a song of half-truths. Every time. And by the time we get to the chorus, we're all singing the same tune. I want to run my life my way. Eve listens to the words of this serpent that seem true and she reasons and then she looks. Verse 6 of chapter 3. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food, delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. You kind of feel all the senses are kind of tingling here. Taste buds are watering. Her mind sharpens this fruit, whatever it is. Everyone thinks it's an apple. The Bible never says that. Whatever this fruit is, she wants it. It's her focus. She suddenly has a desire for something that before she didn't know she had. She suddenly realizes she might be missing out. How many of us reject the goodness of God because we think we're missing out? That idea that there's something better, that the way I construe the world can be better than the way that the God who made the world tells me to live in it. Causes us all sorts of problems. To do things we shouldn't do. To be with people we shouldn't be with. To say things we shouldn't say because, well, I don't want to miss out. I lie at work to keep my job because I don't want to miss out on a job. I do things with friends that I shouldn't do. We cheat one another. All because we think we are missing out on God's goodness for us. Imagine what's going through Eve's head. This tree completes me. It completes me. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. Now this point in the story, the question that goes through my head, apart from no stop, is where is Adam? Remember, This command was given by God to Adam. Eve wasn't around at that point. Adam has then passed it on to Eve. And where is this one who he loves, who he called, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, who was like, this is amazing. You are my partner, my helper, the one to do life together with, to rule over the world under God, to rule with his creation, enjoying his goodness. Where was Adam? Verse 6. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it. The man who named the animals was too afraid to name the sin. Was too afraid to stand up and say, no, stop. My guess is for all the same reasons that Eve did. There's something that he thought he might be missing out on from that moment on. Then verse 7, the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. And here we see the result of sin and pain and death and destruction. For the very first time in history, fear of the bad type comes into the world. For the first time ever, Adam wants to walk away from God, not to him, to hide behind fig leaves. Do you see how pathetic that is? Behind fig leaves. From the creator of the universe, the one who spoke all things into being, the one who made the leaves, who made the trees, who who made the garden they were living in. He wants to hide from God through some fig leaves, as if God won't find him or won't see him. Reminds me of our kids around the age of two, what they do when they want to hide. You can't see me anymore. That's how pathetic it is here. That's the stupidity of trying to cover up our sin before God. He knows all. 
He sees what I've done and what I say and what I think and what you've done and what you say and what you think. But we're exactly like Adam, aren't we? We don't naturally confess our sins to God as if we can keep them from him. We don't confess our sins to others as if our friends and family don't see what we're really like. They do. The only one we're kidding is ourselves. And so we hide. We hide from God. We hide from one another, even from ourselves. And that's the usual strategy people have to deal with fear. It's to hide. Either hide the reality of the situation. I didn't do anything wrong. It just was what I was in. Doesn't matter. It didn't happen. Lie. Or to hide the wrong we do. To pull it away, out of sight. It makes me think as we come through this section and think about, this, this is like me. This is what I am like. What is your style of hiding? Is it to change the truth, the reality? Oh, it's not that bad to do this. To, to change God's word, to add to it, to take away from it? Or is it to run away from God? To say, I, I can't do that. To run away from people and just hide. What are you trying to hide from God? Because it's, it's not being hidden. What foolish games are we playing? We cannot hide from the creator and sustainer of all things. And God goes to Adam. Not Eve, but Adam. Even though Eve probably sinned first, Adam is the one held responsible. Verse 11, chapter 3. Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. (laughs) That's the other thing we do when we're afraid. We we pass the buck. Number one, it's your fault. You gave me that woman. I didn't bring her here. You brought her here. You gave it to me. And now look at what mess we're in. It's your fault, God. So often when we do things wrong, we want to blame God. Your rules are too harsh. Why did you set this situation up like this? And then he blames Eve, it's her fault. She did it. She made me eat it. It's everyone's fault except mine. One of the first things we need to realize with the position we're in in the world, when we look at suffering and we look at the the sickness that exists in terms of the way we are, is that I cause suffering in the lives of others. To my family, to Sarah, to my, my, my friends. I am the cause of so much suffering, not, not everything. And if I want God to boot me out, to, sorry, if I want God to boot suffering out and take away that kind of pain, then I need God to remove those who are causing suffering. I need God to remove me. The first thing sin points to is us. We're the ones who do it. We need to be responsible and recognize that if you live in a way that is different from the way the creator of the universe made us, it's not going to end well. Do you need to stand back and look for where you are at fault? Between you and God, between you and others. So this whole thing could have been a very, very different story. When that snake first spoke and Adam was there with his wife, he could have said, no more. For I'm created to be ruler over this earth that you've put me, that God has put me in place of. No more speaking, let's go Eve. He could have stopped it right there and then. Or when she reached out for that fruit, he could have just touched her hand and said, Eve, just hold on for a second. 
what reason do we have to doubt God's goodness? We've got every reason to say, Eve, that he's given us all these good things. Why would we think he would hold back on anything? Just hang on a second. Or even after Eve had taken that bite and given it to Adam, he could have said to her, I love you, but I love God more. I'm not going to eat of this fruit because I want to serve my God. Or even if he ate it, imagine if he'd fallen to his knees and called out to his God and said, I'm sorry, I have rejected you and confessed his sin right there, right then. He had every opportunity, but he hid. He let everyone go past. That's what we're like. For Adam is our dad. And we naturally don't want to stop it. We let ourselves keep going. We believe the lie. Are there sins in your life right now that you need to say stop to? That you need to go, I need to come before my God who sees it anyway and confess them to him. Well, then God seeks out Adam and finds him and then spells out the ramifications for each of the parties involved. And what we see is that each party here is punished with the fruit of their own labor. Uh, The serpent, the instigator, the one who deceived, is cursed above all the animals, made to crawl on his belly, and most importantly, made to eat dust all the days of his life. You're like, it's kind of an odd punishment for a snake. It's not like he had legs and could walk before. It's like, oh, now I've got to... What, what, what is going on here? Well, God makes the serpent eat what his actions produced. Let me show you. In deceiving the man and the woman, the serpent has produced a break in the relationship between God and humanity. No longer can humanity, can Adam and Eve, stay in the garden in right relationship with God. No longer can they walk and talk with the Creator anymore. No longer do they have access to the tree of life and live forever. The result of the break in relationship is this. Mankind is reduced to dust. For from dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Adam was created from dust through God's word And then God speaks his spirit into his life and Adam was was made alive. And now that relationship between God and man is broken. All that is left is dust. So the serpent is made to eat the fruit of what he's done. You will eat dust all the days of your life. And then uh, God speaks to the woman. And just like the serpent, she received the fruit of her own labor as well. And with every new generation that would, it would come, it would now come with a, a quota of pain. The childbirth would be painful. That word desire here, that she would have a desire for her husband, is the same word that's used in Genesis 4 over Cain's desire. When sin is crouching at the door and he kills his brother Abel. There's a distorted relationship from this point on with her husband. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. The consequences of ignoring God's ways intended these relationships to work between a husband and wife is now a highly distorted relationship between a husband and wife. The wife wants to control the husband and the husband will rule in, I think, an ungodly way naturally over her. 
No longer will they have a relationship of mutual love, but see each other as objects. She will desire to master him and he will rule and lord it over her. This relationship is broken apart. Why is marriage so hard? Because I'm sinful and so is my spouse. Just as the serpent received the fruit of her own labor, of his own labor, so too does the woman. Well, finally, God moves to the man who should have stopped it all. He says this in Genesis 3.17. And he said to Adam, Because you listened to your wife's voice and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. Now, if you're a guy and you're anything like me, this is a great line to take out of context, isn't it? Like, it's a great one. And the problem with the world is that Adam listened to his wife. We shouldn't listen to our wives, right? No, wrong. It's not, that's not what he's saying. Because as husbands, we've got to be careful. You see, well, while Eve did the deed, Adam was responsible. Adam was the one that God went to. Adam was the one who stood, should have stopped it all. But instead of speaking out, Adam is silent. How many marriages would be so much better if the husband spoke out and asked the question, how are you going? Do you feel loved? How many marriages would be better if we actually spoke? If men didn't just abdicate our position. I'm not saying guys should just lead and not even talk to their wives. I'm saying relationships should be mutual, talking together, challenging one another, helpful. Uh, They're to be complimentary, complimenting one another. But so often, guys outsource our role and we just let things go on. Rather than talking together, hearing your wife's input. Sometimes guys just go and do whatever they want anyway and just ignore their wives. That's not right either. We need to be listening to one another and caring for one another. But here we see, instead of speaking out, Adam is silent. And he's silent on the wrong thing. He spoke out about how good she looks when he wanted sex. But he didn't speak out at all when sin came on the scene. And I wonder, is that you? Is that me? Do we shut our eyes to the reality of sin but speak up on other things? Adam trusts his wife's ability to provide goodness more than he trusts God's ability to provide. See, the heart of of marriage is recognizing that God has brought two people together and that God is good. And we need to trust that God is good in what he's doing no matter how hard marriage gets. Marriage will be hard. We need to trust our God over what we think is good. God says, you ate the fruit I told you not to eat. Therefore, no more fruit for you. No longer is man able to walk in the garden and just pick uh, the fruit from the trees. Now he must work the ground. He must eat the plants of the field. Uh, He must dig the dirt. And he is made just like the serpent to eat dust. Well, the fruit of dust. (laughs) Food that comes from the soil. To get the earth to bear fruit would be painful, just like for the woman to bear fruit would be painful for her. Adam's diet is no longer the fruit God provided, but now something he has to dig for. By shifting his trust from the creator to the created, Adam's saying to God, I want to live my life my way without you, and that's exactly what he gets. God's judgment is exactly what we want. I don't want you calling the shots. I don't want... You tell me what to do or how to live. 
Friends, the reminder here is that life without God just results in dust. Why is there so much suffering in the world? Why is there so much pain? (laughs) Because we're dust. We're no longer in right relationship with God. We've rejected God as our ruler and tried to do it our own way. We've suffered the consequences of that. And it's not just us that suffers. Paul talks about the whole world is suffering because of that sin, because of that rebellion against God. Look at Romans 8, 22. Paul says this, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Why? Because we failed to rule the world as we should, the way God set Adam and Eve up to do under him, his way. We're just like Adam. We want to live our lives our way without God. And just as in the garden, life without God only leads to death. And so they are kicked out. And death enters the world. And that's where we see our greatest hope. It's going to sound a little bit weird, but death becomes mankind's greatest hope. Death becomes mankind's greatest hope. See, if mankind as we are in Adam was allowed to continue to live forever, if we were to be as we once were in the garden, imagine life with people who are rebellious and who hate one another and do all sorts of things that are nasty and horrible. It would be a world full of pain and suffering and broken relationships without hope forever. Forever. Someone's got to put an end to that because that is wrong. And God did. Death gives us hope because that brokenness that you and I feel will end. But secondly, death gives us hope in a little hint we get of this overarching story throughout the whole Bible in verse 15. Have a look with me. God says to the serpent, I'll put hostility between you and the woman. And between your seed or offspring and her seed or offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. There's a promise here of a battle, a day when the offspring of the serpent would fatally wound the offspring of the woman. But the offspring of the woman would kill and crush the serpent's head. A day is coming when the child of the woman and the serpent will take one another out fatally. There's no surviving a snake bite in a world without antivenom. Just as you can't survive a crushed head. What's happening here is that God is setting up an expectation for someone, a descendant of the woman, who will crush the serpent's head, ending his rule. And in so doing, this son of the woman will receive a fatal blow. What's on view? It was not the Garden of Eden, but the Garden of Gethsemane. A different garden, where... At another place and another time, a man who claimed to be God, the son, would plead to his father. Not my will, but yours, he said. The exact opposite of what Adam said. Adam and Eve said, not not your will, but mine. Jesus said in this garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours. And willingly, as an innocent person, walked to his death. If death came into the world because of sin... The one who hasn't sinned didn't deserve death and so he walked to a cross and he died in our place so that you and I could stand forgiven. He offered us life forever. Forgiveness. So there's a sense in which you stand here and you look, I look at my life and the way I've lived and the things I've done and the things I've said 
And I know I don't deserve God's goodness. I deserve separation from God's goodness forever. Death, judgment, hell. But what is on offer in this book throughout history, through this man Jesus, is life forever, forgiveness. That God would send his son, that God in himself could fix that relationship between me and him and have all my wrongs paid for and all the rights of Jesus applied to me. There's no greater news, is there? Those things that guilt your conscience at night can be forgiven. If you trust in Jesus and you've confessed your sin, they are forgiven. And there's likely to be earthly ramifications of the way we live. We still live in a world that's broken. Not everything will be rosy, but we can know that our future is secure because of Jesus' death in our place. You can stand forgiven before the creator of the universe who <laughs> you can't hide anything from, who sees all and knows all. In that garden of Gethsemane, the solution to suffering was on show. The one who came and suffered for us so that we might not need to suffer after death. Eternal life was on offer. Are you sick of pain and death and suffering and not living up to your own expectations or the expectations of others? Come to Jesus, God the Son, through whom and for whom and by whom all things were made. Come to him and find in him forgiveness, life forever. While we're still living in this world, we're going to still suffer the consequences of a brokenness that exists, broken relationship with God. As long as people still rebel against God, sin will still exist. But a time will come when Jesus comes back as he promised and this world will be made new. And those who trust in Jesus and what he's done for them will experience life as it was meant to be. So the Bible makes the most sense of the pain and suffering in the world we experience. It comes because of us. It was our rebellion against God, living in God's world in a way that he didn't make us to live. As you stand back and look at this big picture of life, there's only really two people that matter in this whole universe. Adam and Jesus. In Adam, all of us were, were made with a bent nature to reject God. And in Jesus, all of us can be made right with him if you would come and put your life in his hands. And the question for us today is, are you a son of Adam or are you a son of God? Whose child will you be?